Dr. Mark McClellan is the director of the Robert J. Margolis Center for Health Policy and a professor of business, medicine, and health policy at Duke University. He was previously with the Brookings Institution and the commissioner of the United States Food and Drug Administration under President George W. Bush. Today, he will discuss the COVID-19 pandemic and how health agencies are responding to the crisis. Let's listen in. Okay, well, welcome, doctor, and thank you very much for being here. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Andrew Tish. I'm one of the founders of No Labels, and I, and I want to welcome you to what will be a slightly abbreviated, but I'm sure uh, equally informative session uh, this afternoon. And I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Mark McClellan, who is the Robert J. Margulis uh, Professor of Business Medicine and Health Policy and the founding director of the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University. Dr. McClellan is a physician and an economist who has informed and improved, improved a wide range of strategies and policy reforms to advance healthcare, including payment reforms to promote better outcomes and lower costs, methods for development and use of real world evidence, and strategies for more effective biomedical innovation. Before coming to Duke, he served as a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution, where he was also director of the Healthcare Innovation and Value Initiative Center and led the Richard Merkin Initiative on Payment Reform and Clinical Leadership. He's also a former commissioner of the FDA. So uh, without further ado, uh, uh, Dr. McClellan, the floor is yours, and then we will get into some uh, some Q&A, so please, uh, uh, please go ahead and thank you for being here. Great, Th thanks, Andrew. I I'm gonna be brief um, because I really wanna hear from you all. And um, this is, uh, th there's hopefully some opportunities to, to work together going forward. Um, I've uh, been a fan of uh, No Labels for a while. I, I wish uh, uh, this was more of, uh, of what uh, most people were, were thinking about and, and talking about, especially right now in this uh, very challenging uh, election season and very challenging time for our country. Um, you all have uh, uh, some some great ideas and a great approach to, to trying to, to get to action. So uh, uh, really good to be with you. I thought I'd just start with a, a couple of comments about the moment we're living in related to COVID. And, and you know, there, this wraps up so many other issues in the country around um, health disparities, economic disparities, um, uh, and, and the like too. But um, uh, right now, I think there's some important opportunities for a group like this to help bring a measure of, um, uh, uh, calm is not the right word, but uh, um, sense of stable direction on getting us out of this pandemic. Um, so that certainly goes for issues related to how regulatory agencies are handling decisions like uh, FDA and convalescent plasma or, uh, or upcoming um, uh, vaccine uh, issues, uh, uh, how the products will be approved, uh, how they're gonna be distributed and used. It goes to how we're trying to manage the um, ongoing um, uh, level of um, uh, COVID outbreaks uh, really all across our communities. It's pretty much endemic 
um, everywhere and um, been very challenging to uh, open critical parts of our economy as a result. And top of the list there is schools, I'd say. There, uh, there are um, policies I think both sides should be able to get, a, get behind that could um, uh, get us out of this even before uh, vaccines are available. They include masks and other um, sort of social distancing steps, small groups, six feet plus uh, where, where possible, and definitely masks uh, where not, um, and um, more effective use of, um, of testing, something where um, we've had some real challenges in the early months of the pandemic, but from where I sit now, um, those delays in getting access to COVID lab tests are getting better, and we've seen a lot of innovation in the private sector, supported by government, potentially could be supported even better um, to develop um, screening tests. You all may have seen this week, uh, um, uh, one company, and, and I think there are a couple more that are going to follow uh, developing uh, or uh, uh, announcing that they've been approved or going to be approved soon for manufacturing literally tens of millions of so-called point of care tests for whether or not um, uh, someone is infectious with COVID um, for, you know, five to 10, $15 per test, um, which takes us from a situation where we're kind of in a testing shortage, which is not a good place to be when you've got kind of COVID uh, uh, all over the place, you know, not controlled, and you're trying to reopen schools or get students back to college or um, protect people in, in um, essential jobs who have low incomes and, uh, and uh, come from communities of color and, and have um, a much harder time uh, uh, preventing um, spread. Um, so there are paths forward out of this. I think, you know, both parties, all sides uh, ought to be able to agree on. Um, it's just a, a challenging time to do it. And I, I hope we can uh, keep in touch. Glad to talk about those issues or anything else during our, um, during our limited time together now. Um, but uh, the issues aren't going away. It's just one more thing on the vaccine front. Um, uh, we are trying, when I say we, our, our center at Duke working with a, um, sort of a, a, a well-meaning group of um, experts, Democratic and Republican, former leaders, uh, um, uh, a, a, a group called the, uh, the, the COVID uh, Collaborative that includes a lot of former government officials that some of you may be connected with, um, are trying to create some of this space around vaccines because public confidence, well, first of all, execution of uh, uh, the, the regulatory process and the development process for vaccines needs to be done right and there needs to be public confidence in it. Um, we're holding an event next Thursday afternoon. We'll, we'll send around the, the links that includes the leadership of the Biologic Center at FDA. That's the professional career staff that are overseeing all of the uh, vaccine development and approval issues um, and a bipartisan group of former FDA commissioners who kind of all align that there is a good process here, including the emergency use authorization process that FDA uh, as career staff, they know how to use it. They're on a potentially a good track to executing on it. Um, we just need to make sure that that happens and that the American public uh, realizes it. So we're gonna have a couple of hours, just kind of direct discussion of where are we now with vaccines? What should people expect uh, coming straight from the, reg the, the, the professional uh, expert regulators um, to hopefully create some more clarity about what should happen, what is happening. I think those two can be aligned uh, and then help to make sure it does happen. And then there's kind of good public understanding coming out of that. But I think there are a lot of 
um, opportunities like that where, where this group could help in, in some of the issues we're facing around COVID. Um, and again, really glad to have some, some time with you today. Yeah, well, th thank you very much. Um, uh, I was going to say, uh, if you have, if you want to ask a question, go to uh, participants and do uh, and raise your hand. Uh, we already have five questions in the hopper, and I'll give you the order: uh, Jim Hope, Fred Zeidman, Murray Levin, Maxine Clark, and George Radenberg. Uh, and uh, we've got a limited time, so uh, uh, Jim, why don't you start? Okay, thank you, um, uh, and thank you, Doctor. I, I think you kind of you kind of answered my question right at the end there, uh, in, at least in part, and that was uh, I'm I'm concerned about uh, about the acceptance of the American people of uh, of of, uh, of the vaccines. I'm concerned about the anti-vax crowd that's out there who who would who appears to yeah. at least be in part uh, kind of kind of a nutty group. Uh, uh, at least historically, and but I, I'm I'm interested in in what more can be done to uh, get people to understand the the need and, and and the safety of the vaccine and what we as a group if uh, if there's anything we can do as a group that can that can advance that. Well, I think um, there's there's uh, so right now with vaccines, I, I I appreciate the question. I see a couple of other comments about you know. <laughs> worrisome trends in public confidence in our uh, established uh, public health institutions. Um, but vaccines is probably the, the most critical for getting out of the pandemic in the next year. Um, so I think part of the challenge now is that, you know, we're just not there yet. So a lot of people are talking about, um, you know, what may or may not happen is the vaccine. So we've got there, we say that, that, um, in part led by FDA and NIH and, and supported by uh, this Operation Warp Speed and some of the political leadership. Um, I'd say so far in terms of vaccine development, the, this whole process has gone kind of right. Um, people, you know, we um, at, at Duke in collaboration with a lot of other experts, Scott Gottlieb, other former commissioners have been steadily writing about these topics and refer people to our website if you're interested in, there's tons of stuff on vaccines and therapeutics there. But what we and others were advocating since this really began back in the spring was finding a way to accelerate progress on vaccines without cutting corners. And there's some things you just can't do faster, like a clinical trial. Um, it takes, you know, you've got to vaccinate the, uh, the, the, the patients who are enrolled in the trial or give them the placebo injection. You've got to wait another 28 days for most of these vaccines in development, and you got to wait after that to see if they actually have fewer infections or less serious infections. Um, that just takes time. Um, it takes time to manufacture um, uh, vaccine products. It's complex manufacturing. It takes months. Um, it can take time to set up a clinical trial network to do those trials. So what, what we and others are advocating is, well, we need to do all those things, but let's do them in parallel. Like, so normally it takes six years plus to develop a vaccine because first you figure out, okay, you've got a problem and you know, what, what does the vaccine from a preclinical standpoint need to look like that we think it would work, animal testing, and then maybe early stage human testing. And then you try to enroll enough people in a study to, uh, to prove that it works clinically or not. That's kind of what we did with SARS, the last um, uh, coronavirus. And um, it wasn't that things went really slowly. It's just, you know, we, did the clinical trial after we did the preclinical testing because 
you know, there's some people who had it, but it wasn't anything like this level of health and economic impact. Um, and then by the time the clinical trial got going, um, the infection was much, you know, it was much easier to contain than COVID because, you know, when you were infectious, you had pretty severe symptoms. So you know, many people died, mortality rate was higher, but the, the spread rate was effectively much lower. It was much easier to contain than COVID. So the trial basically ran out of patients and, you know, we never even got to the, the next stage of manufacturing. For this, um, FDA came out with guidance early on about what manufacturers should do. That's been out since you know, the spring and formally written up since the early summer. Um, the government invested jointly with uh, six different major vaccine manufacturers with, for the most part, different types of vaccine platforms uh, to uh, help accelerate the preclinical development into clinical uh, of um, multiple vaccine platforms. Um, NIH worked to set up a clinical trial network so that as soon as the vaccines were ready for clinical testing, they could go right into large scale uh, trials. And uh, uh, HHS through BARDA invested jointly with a lot of the manufacturers in building substantial vaccine manufacturing capacity. And other governments around the world are doing this too. So, you know, we're going to have tens, if not hundreds of millions of doses of each of these vaccines available, if not when these clinical trials are done, but very soon after. Not only that, because the clinical trial networks got set up and planned beforehand, um, we could go right from when these the first two of these six were ready to go into testing, the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, uh, they could enroll lots of people off the bat. They've been enrolling for about four weeks now, probably have 30, 40,000 patients enrolled. They're aiming for 30,000 person trials. And those trials are gonna take some time. You know, It's gonna depend on how effective the vaccine is, how much COVID activity there is um, to, to know, you know, to see how long it's going to take to know whether it works. But when we do know, there is also all this manufacturing capacity. And it's not just these first two vaccines, we're doing that for these four others. So that I would say is like brilliant and unprecedented uh, uh, combination of regulatory uh, engagement and, and uh, fast and effective action in the part of the private sector. Where we're running into trouble now is that we're right in the middle of that process. And it's absolutely the case that a lot could go wrong down the road. Um, for vaccines, you really need to know the only point of doing these large trials is to know, number one, does it really achieve um, a, an important hard clinical endpoint, fewer infections, less severe infections, and FDA set a standard that we need to see at least a 50% reduction, which is kind of a okay flu vaccine. That's probably what we're going to get, something that's like in the 50, 70% range, probably not something that's going to be a you know one-time injection. You don't have to worry about this for the rest of your life. It's not, it doesn't look like a smallpox uh, uh, situation, more like a, more like a flu vax to, to a pneumovax, something you might need to get, it'll be pretty effective, but you might need to get boosters and hopefully effective enough if enough people use it that, that you end the spread through um, enough herd immunity. But we're not there yet. And so there's some, been some concerns that FDA would approve this before um, those clinical endpoints are achieved or um, uh, and, and that uh, people would be given a vaccine that's not necessarily safe and effective. FDA is really trying hard at the staff level to avoid that. And part of the reason we're having that event next week to give them a chance to get on the record and say exactly what they're doing. And what I think they're going to say is that while there is a possibility for an emergency use authorization, as it's called, of a vaccine, it would not happen until after 
we have those clinical endpoints determined to our satisfaction. And what is our satisfaction? Well, they specified in their guidance. It seems to me to be unlikely that that's gonna happen by October, November timeframe. Seems more likely by November, December, January timeframe, but who knows? You know, some of these vaccines could be you know, way more, more effective even than, than people are expecting. Um, and then um, the, the vaccine would be used on a limited basis in the highest risk groups where there's the most evidence to support it. And it would only happen after there's been a lot of public transparency, including a meeting of FDA's uh, uh, Infectious Disease Advisory Committee, their Vaccine Advisory Committee, where um, the, the company's data would be presented publicly, the FDA's evaluation of the company's data would be presented publicly, there'd be publicly, public discussion by you know, independent experts of what it all means, and only after that would FDA make a decision about um, uh, uh, using the vaccine. Um, and you, the, the, I'm not going to go into it in the same level of detail, but some of the same issues go for planning around vaccine distribution, where we're all going to have to work together. There's a CDC process for identifying, um, or will be, for identifying who should get the vaccine first. They have an advisory committee, too. There should be transparency around that. What I think is the, the only thing you can do now, I think, would be most helpful is kind of remind the American public that we have agencies that, that know what should be done in these circumstances, and here's what those things are. And then with a lot of support from groups like this one, um, as there's, you know, attacks from, you know, wherever um, on, uh, you know, the, the, uh, this is a political exercise or, or there's a, you know, deep state, whatever, blocking <laughs> uh, faster progress uh, can come from any, can come from all sides. Um, that the, there's a, a clear middle and hopefully a good public understanding of what's needed and hopefully we can translate that into, into good vaccine acceptance. This country is not in a good place on vaccine acceptance to begin with, as you mentioned. We've got a relatively large, this is a rambunctious country, as you know, a lot of people with strong uh, views that are, you know, diverse. Um, so um, we don't have a whole lot of room to move in terms of um, losing public confidence. And, and I hope uh, this group and a lot of other thoughtful voices on both sides of the aisle can help preserve um, this kind of space as we move from, you know, are we actually going, here's what the process should be and why, are we actually following that? And based on it, um, what are the right decisions that, that people should make and, and trust the expert advice uh, around those decisions um, to, to get to hopefully a, a good outcome. This is a really big challenge in the months ahead though. Thank you. Um... Listen, given the the uh, shortness of the time, what I'm going to do is ask um, the- I'm sorry, the, that was a long answer, but it was- I, a, that's, quite, that's quite all right. I'll give you the chance to give another long answer because I, what I would like to do is uh, ask the five people we have in the queue to each ask the questions and then you can answer all five. So- uh, Okay. Um, Fred, uh, Fred Zeidman. Mark, great to see you. Good to see you. My, my question is not, how's your mother, but I'd be remiss <laughs> if I didn't ask. And also, please tell her hello for me. Uh, but here, here's my question. A, a lot of, for months now, uh, a lot of the conversation around the presidential election is that the state of the country with regard to this uh, could have a lot to do with the uh uh, uh, with the winner of the presidential uh, election in November, that whether or not we are locked up, whether or not we have spiked again, 
uh, whether or not we've made major progress could be a big determinant of the winner of the election. Can you give me your understanding uh, of or your thoughts on where we might be uh, come November with, with schools reopening, whether there should be spikes around the country? I'm sorry, my question probably went too long, but. And that's good. Okay. Um, Murray Levin. Yes, first of all, doctor, thank you for your service to the country and for sharing your insights with us today. Uh, I'm, uh, my question is whether we should, as a nation, be concerned with the politicization of our stellar uh, federal health groups, the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, et cetera. I'm assuming that you are in touch still with some of the people you worked with when you were there. And I'm just yeah. wondering, is there any sense of uh, disillusionment or anger, or is that overblown? And if it is in fact being politicized, how can we push back on that? Thank you. Great. Uh, uh, Maxine Clark. Yeah. Uh, my question is, in the past when we've had vaccines, whether it's for flu or shingles or pneumonia, we don't know how long they've been in, in research or how many years they were testing them. And now all of a sudden, all this information is public to us. We know there's several people submitting um, tests or viruses, uh, not viruses, vaccines. How will, what if one is, is late to the table, but it turns out to be the best one and they've already sent out the one that was, uh, so it works, but it's not as good as the one that gets the results a little bit longer. How are we going to know as individuals which vaccine to ask for in that respect? I don't think we ever... We, as far as we, I know, there's one flu vaccine, one single yeah. vaccine, one whatever. So our doctors tell us what to take. Yeah. Okay, George Radenberg. Uh, so hi, Mark. Uh, good to hi. see you. Uh, uh, you gave a very uh, optimistic uh, report on how the FDA ought to act and has acted in the past. I'm curious as to whether there is precedent for an appropriate emergency use authorization before the final clinical endpoints are reached in a completed uh, phase three trial. Is there an appropriate use of an emergency use authorization prior to the completion of a phase three? Stamen Ogilvy. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, doctor, there are very few young people on this call, uh, <laughs> but they seem to be the people who are uh, newly ascendant in the number of new cases. Fortunately, uh, they are low mortality types uh, so far. And my question is whether young people are likely to have any enduring effects after they have recovered. They've got the strength to go on, but they've done damage to livers and lungs and uh, other organs. Okay, okay all, doctor, doctor, all, all yours. Okay, um, and let me, uh, let me try to get through uh, all of this. So most of this, um, related to vaccines and, and also the risk of politicization. It's, it's a real risk. Uh, it's happening now. I think it's gonna get to be a, a, a bigger, sorry, the concerns about it are happening now. Beneath the surface at FDA, uh, and um, I'm, I'm less familiar with CDC, but I suspect there too, there's still a career staff that's trying to do the right thing. It is, it is much harder when they're being attacked, including by their own administration. Uh, but also by other groups. And FDA has taken it from both sides, uh, including in like the recent um, uh, convalescent plasma um, uh, decision. And this is, gets to George, George's questions, uh, George's question too. 
uh, about um, uh, the right way to use an emergency use authorization. Remember, this is specifically designed for an approval of a product in a public health emergency, which we are unquestionably in, with a lower standard of evidence, but, but the standard of evidence by statute and by FDA's regulation still needs to meet, uh, not necessarily that the product is uh, beneficial and is absolutely safe, but still needs to meet a preponderance of the available evidence test, uh, that it is, uh, that the benefits likely outweigh the risk. Not that it's necessarily proven, but the benefits likely outweigh the risk. And that's what you tend to do when there's you know, no available alternative. And I'll give you two contrasting examples um, for this uh, for, for George. One is for the convalescent plasma approval. As you've been watching, that's been controversial. Uh, the FDA commissioner unquestionably misstated and overstated the degree of uh, evidence in support of convalescent plasma. The president did it as well. Uh, that politicization and the misstatements about benefits and risks was unfortunate. Uh, but the decision itself by the FDA was right in line with what emergency use is supposed to be about. Convalescent plasma is very, very unlikely to be harmful to people. We've used it in, in many different infectious diseases. It's been used in thousands of patients, tens of thousands of patients with uh, COVID. It's being used right now. It was being used even before um, the uh, uh, FDA authorization, emergency authorization. So from a safety standpoint, there's not really much concern. On the benefits side, for those of you who, read, who saw President Trump's uh, uh, press conference, it does not reduce mortality by 35% or anything like that. There is some suggestion from non-randomized studies, so not the usual study, George, that would constitute a phase three basis for approval. There's some evidence that having better, stronger convalescent plasma might have been associated with a little bit better, somewhat better outcomes, so could help. Um, fortunately, there are a few clinical trials going on now that should provide more definitive evidence. So this is why it's actually not a conflict for, on the one hand, FDA to grant an emergency use authorization. But on the other hand, the NIH um, evidence review panel to come out um, you know, a few days later and say, well, we don't see clear and convincing evidence that this treatment is safe and effective. It is, I, I think it's safe. Uh, I don't know if it's effective. Um, NIH also complained, their advisory committee complained, well, there hasn't been a randomized trial done. I wish NIH would have funded a randomized trial. That would have been really nice to, to have right now. A lot of our work is on uh, how we do uh, these clinical trials in the pandemic better and faster, but that was an appropriate use of emergency, uh, the emergency use authorization. Vaccines would be really different because you're talking about a product that would be given to millions of people who are healthy. So the safety standard there is completely different. Um, we, we, um, uh, we're giving a product that we know causes reactions. In some cases it's called cause severe reactions. So you absolutely have to do enough uh, clinical studies to be confident that there is not a big safety problem. And on the other hand, and not confident enough that the treatment really does work to offset any potential safety problem that exists. And that means looking for the actual endpoints of the trial. So I don't see a way to do, I don't think the biologic team at FDA sees a way to do an emergency use authorization for a vaccine before you've got that, that clinical endpoint evidence. And then um, uh, related to that, a couple of other um, uh, questions on, you know, what we're likely to, to see in terms of um, infection, um, uh, 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 sort of infectivity and the like. Um, it's probably going to be the case that these 
Vaccines will last for a while, but not forever. And the question about you know people who are young who didn't have much symptoms usually, um, I, I think for the most part it looks like uh, they they are actually they do actually have some level of immunity. There have been some um, reports that people who had very very mild cases can potentially get reinfected. Um, but I think for the most part, if you have it, uh, you're going to mount an immune response and you're going to be immune. Uh, for a while, or if you do get it again, it'll be a less severe case. How long that lasts is completely unknown because this virus has only been around for less than a year. So we really need to be doing some big studies where we track people who have been infected at different degrees of, seri of seriousness of infection over time and see how that persists. But I wouldn't be surprised if we end up having to get um, vaccine boosters. And there's a question about, you know, this for the first time ever, probably we're going to have uh, a number of vaccines to choose from, and it's sort of the equivalent of, well, do I get the iPhone 10 or wait for the iPhone, you know, or the, the Android uh, 11 that may come out a couple of months later? Yes, uh, we're going to have to think through all of that, and that's why it is so important to um, give people clear information and evidence about the decisions they should make. Uh, this is where that FDA advisory group that I mentioned will come in. There's also a CDC expert group, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, um, which makes specific recommendations as to who should get what vaccine or not. I expect that when they meet uh, to discuss a, a vaccine, when it's at a stage where it could be used, either emergency use or more widely, uh, they will opine about um, whether you should take this one or, or potentially wait and which groups you know, seem to have the best risk benefit uh, profile. Uh, all of these trials are focusing on older individuals and on subgroups of people with um, uh, serious chronic diseases to help make sure uh, that we do get enough um, evidence on that. But again, we're kind of at this critical time, this um, uncertain time in vaccines where I think we know the things that we should do, and um, people are wondering the level of distrust in government right now and the partisanship, whether that's actually going to happen. And what I think is, is very important, I'll, I'll you know, end on this where I started, um, what I think is very important is that we provide as much clarity as possible to the American public about what should happen, what should the professional staff at CDC be allowed to do, what should the FDA staff be allowed to do. I think they have good plans in place, especially on the FDA side. And then we need to make sure that happens over the next few critical months on vaccine development, which will provide transparency, which will provide clear guidance from government uh, expert um, advisory boards, and which hopefully can lead to uh, confident use. Um, but we're right in the midst of going through that. So, you know, I, I can't, uh, I can't guarantee that's gonna happen. And I think, um, Fred, I may not have gotten to your question, did I? No, you hadn't. Okay, so just for, if you can, can you remind me? <laughs> yeah, well, the first one was, how's your mother? But the second Oh, yeah, so she's doing okay. You know, she's um, uh, about to turn 81, and the, right. you know, the warranty is definitely expired, but uh, she's, still, she's still hanging and, and, in there. <laughs> and don't forget to tell her hello for me. I will. But the, the, the question is, <laughs> what you. do you think the status, I don't know the right way to say this, of the country will be? Or I'm not going to ask you oh, yeah, how you think that. it'll affect the election. Yeah. But will are, you think we're looking at another spike? Do you think the yeah. start of school will cause that? Do you think it'll continue to level off, level off or go down, Mark? Yeah, we're, we seem to be getting to the leveling off phase that's continuing. So a lot of the areas of the South that were part of the big outbreaks in the summer 
the cases have come down a lot from where they were. People are definitely acting differently. So more masks, more distancing, people are taking that seriously, more enforcement of, of mask rules and, and you know, limits on bars and things like that. But we are by no means at the level of behavior that would help us get to zero. You know, if 95% of the American public did all these basic things that are recommended, mass distance, no, no gatherings, more than 10 people, uh, we absolutely would uh, contain this in the next, um, you know, in the next uh, month or two. Um, we don't seem to be getting there as soon as, you know, there, there seems to be uh, improvement. Um, you know, there's a combination of trying to do more like reopening schools or universities or people kind of letting their guard down a bit. So I think most likely we're gonna kind of muddle along for the next month or so. People are worried about a big spike uh, in the fall, um, which you know could happen with, um, uh, you know, with flu season coming. But if you look at flu season elsewhere in the world in the Southern hemisphere, there have been way, way fewer cases because of everything that people are doing to prevent COVID. You know, flu is in, in some ways uh, uh, less contagious than, uh, than COVID. So, doing what we're doing for COVID should help there too. Uh, so Fred, I see it as kind of muddling through. I know there's um, kind of this political suspicion that um, the administration's gonna put forward a, a vaccine in, in late October. Um, I think if you, if you read closely, um, I, I think that's actually unlikely to happen, especially if FDA follows its own guidance, as I was just talking about on what it would take for an emergency use authorization. And if it does, even that's not clearly a win for the administration because you know, good luck uh, distributing this vaccine right. in an emergency situation fast. Uh, there's one thing that I can guarantee you from having implemented large federal programs like Medicare Part D, um, it, it doesn't work right <laughs> at the very beginning. Uh, it takes a few weeks uh, or longer to, to get things sorted out. And, you know, if I were, if, and I would not, this should be a public health issue, not a political issue. I'd be really careful about, um, you know, trying to do something like that in, uh, uh, in a high election season. So, um, you know, it's, it, it, it would definitely will definitely be managed in a different way if uh, if there's a um, you know uh, if, if Biden wins the White House, um, but I think the you know it's it, it's just part of the model heading into the election. I think. Uh, let me just turn it over now to uh, one of No Labels co-founders, -fo uh, uh, my good friend Bill Galston. So, uh, thank you all very much, and Bill. Hey, Mark, I know time is of the essence, so I'll keep it short. We, sh we still miss you at Brookings, uh, <laughs> but we're, we're, happy, we're happy that you people like you and Scott Gottlieb and others are on the case. And I know that a number of people on this meeting will be very interested in to participate in the event that you've scheduled for, ne for next, next week. I suspect that I'll be on point on behalf of the No Labels coronavirus uh, team to, to reach out to you and continue this conversation. And thank you for making, making that offer. Finally, uh, a, you know, a sort of a political warning uh, that I think will not come to you as, as a surprise. You know, the, the CDC letter, uh, uh, requesting a number of entities, including states, to be ready for vaccine distribution on November 1st has raised a mountain of suspicion. Uh, Secretary Azar issued a statement today to the effect that that November 1st deadline has 
nothing to do with the election. <laughs> Nobody I know believes that. We have a problem, and I sure hope that people like you and Scott and others can help us solve it. Dr. McClellan discusses the innovation currently happening in both the public and private sectors to create affordable and accessible COVID-19 screening tests, which he claims is the quickest way out of the crisis. He also notes that his center at Duke is working with public health officials to share reliable information about development of vaccines, a need that he says stems from the American public's distrust of government leadership. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. <laughs>